This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Clearing Customs got easier with a new app. And speaking of new, there's new battery technology that might impact our future of flight. Also, Cirrus gets a CEO that's not named Klapmeyer. And Icon slashes its workforce. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Have a 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, a really fun show. We've got Sarah Rovner. She's a, an airline pilot and also owns a, an aircraft ferrying company. That's right. We're going to hear a lot about Sarah. She's a young pilot, and she also is a tail dragger uh, specialist, and she's got a couple of scholarships she's going to talk to us about, too. Okay, fantastic. And before we get going, we just want to uh, mention there's a, if you didn't hit all the AirVenture news, you didn't listen to Hangar Talk last time, maybe you didn't follow the website or ePilot, if you want to find out everything that happened in AirVenture, there is a digest on AOPA's news page. That's right. If Just go to AOPA.org and click down to our news tab and look at the AirVenture digest. It's all the news that is going to be important to you and some of the new products and basically everything wrapped up in one spot, easy for people to check out. Okay, so make sure you check that out. But uh, moving on with stuff that's happened since AirVenture, first thing we want to talk about is if you're somebody who goes cross-border a lot, so maybe to the Bahamas or Mexico, Canada, something like that, there's a new app that's going to make things a little easier for you. And it's an app that was brought to us by Boeing and Jeppesen. It's called Mobile Quick Clear. Ian, I don't know if you've used it yet or if you've been flying internationally yet, but this looks like it's going to make it pretty darn easy. Yeah, it just came out. So it's only, I should say, for iOS. So I have not used it. I'm an Android guy. Hopefully they'll uh, migrate it over to Android sometime soon. But the idea here is, you know, you still have to do EAPIS. That's that electronic, you know, customs thing that you have to do where you have to tell them who's on the airplane and all that. But this makes it easier because you can also put the information in the app. And so when you get to customs back in the States, they've got all the information ready to go. That's right. And AOPA met with customs and the border protection officials to share ideas on how to move forward this kind of initiative. And I do think it's going to be easier for pilots. I was actually really darn close to 
Canada just last week, Ian, coming back from, from AirVenture, this probably would have been helpful if I needed to divert into Canadian airspace. Yeah, absolutely, and come back. So I know, especially for, you know, folks who are doing like charter back and forth a lot, that sort of thing, it's like, you know, you got to deal with all sorts of paperwork when you get there to customs. So this you can put in the manifest before you even leave. It's ready there. The agent's going to have it. And so hopefully it'll make it really bring down errors, I think, is what people are going for and make the whole process a lot smoother. That's right. So it's called Mobile Quick Clear. And if you're an iOS user, it should be available. You could also find it from the Jeppesen.com site as well. Keep your eyes peeled for Mobile Passport and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection app. That's right. Okay, hey, moving on, we want to talk about electric a little bit. This is something that we, we love to talk about occasionally. And one company that we really like to follow up on is Buy Aerospace. You know, they're working on this, the two place and also the four place. And they came out with some news last week that says they're doing a different type of battery in the four place. That's right. Tom Horn caught up with George Buy from Buy Aerospace. And the E-Flyer 4, this is the four-person version of that aircraft, they're looking at having a battery with about twice as much power and life. And so this will give folks, well, you actually give the airplane cells in excess of 500 watts per hour per kilogram, I think is how it's judged. Basically, what we need to know now is that the E-Flyer 2 prototype, the battery density is about half of that. So you're looking at twice as powerful of a battery, and that allegedly would let the four-place airplane fly for about 4.2 hours. Yeah, it's pretty amazing when they came out with the stats for this, and everyone says, okay, that's cool, but, you know, is it actually going to work? And so, yeah, the, the two uses lithium ion, so traditional kind of battery packs that we're used to. But this new pack that's being developed by this company in Europe, it's um, lithium sulfur. So lots of questions still, I think, on like recharge time and how many cycles. They say it's going to be 500 cycles, but we'll see. And then really the big thing that I think electric airplanes that you got to worry about is sort of how crashworthy they are. And in case of, you know, like runaway battery fires and stuff, can that all be contained? So definitely some stuff to work out there. And speaking of runaway battery fires, it is something that we're very attuned to now because I think Boeing had some early problems with their Dreamliner with lithium-ion batteries. Mm -hmm. And even now as a passenger on an aircraft, you know that on a passenger aircraft, you're supposed to be on board in the cabin with your rechargeable batteries and not ship them as luggage. So yes, containing those is a huge challenge. And Tom Horn, who wrote the um, article, I just talked to him a few minutes ago, and he said that that's a lot of the weight of this aircraft is trying to contain those batteries and keep them safe in case of a potential crash. I love this little tidbit is that the company in trying to test this and trust, you know, test the sort of the crash worthiness of their batteries, they've fired a bullet through one of the cells. <laughs> Let's hope to there see are no what bullets in, 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 uh, in the airspace area. So <laughs> I know it doesn't yeah. seem like a very uh, useful test for an airplane, but uh, interesting, I suppose. Yeah. To make sure the <laughs> systems are robust enough for a bullet. Stop the bullet. That's right. Hey, we mentioned this at the at the tease at the beginning, but Cirrus Aircraft, maker of the SR20, SR22, and now the SF50, uh, they have a new CEO that's not named Klatmeyer the first time. And this is really an interesting transition for the company in a, a, a new era, I would say. That's right. A non-Klatmeyer that's running the show, and it's Sean, Sean Nielsen. And uh, I think Tom Haynes caught up with him over at EAA AirVenture. But the one thing that stood out to me, Ian, right off the bat was that Sean's not a pilot yet. He's a student pilot. And he was looking at getting inside of Cirrus, which you know from having flown them, they are just, they're really a pilot's aircraft. Everything seems to be in exactly the right spot. It's so comfortable. 
But even Sean noticed, well, why is it, you know, not easier? Why isn't there a text message to remind me about setting up the radio and making these calls? So he's bringing a lot of interesting automobile style technology to the cockpit of an aircraft. And that's from his background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it fits the whole Cirrus vision really well. I think, you know, they have often tried to get beyond sort of the airplane history into some, you know, different areas to think about different ways to approach some of the stuff that we just sort of take for granted. And yeah, you're right. He did work for Tesla for a little while, Sean, and some other sort of big electronic companies and some other places. So going to bring, I think, an interesting perspective to Cirrus. And, you know, Cirrus is one of the uh, probably the most successful uh, general aviation aircraft manufacturers in the, you know, the past couple of decades here. They had 443 aircraft delivered in 2018. That's a high number to meet or beat by any other manufacturer. Yep. Yep. That's right. So we wish them the best. And he's just getting into it. You said brand new student pilot. So I think that's going to obviously shape a lot of his, uh, a lot of the strategy going forward for them. So it'll be kind of interesting to see what, what they're able to do with it. That's right. So speaking of another sort of new man, well, Cirrus isn't new anymore, but another uh, sort of new age manufacturer icon, they've had their ups and downs now with their new CEO have decided they're going to cut their workforce by 40%. Ian, I would say that's a significant down in my book. Yeah. I'm, I, was, uh, I was sorry to see that. Dave Hirschman caught up with them last week, and the news broke about um, really just last Friday. So what happened is that they're going to reduce the workforce by 40%, like you said. That's from 650 employees down to 400. I think that's very significant. It is. Now, did you get a chance to fly that airplane yet? I still haven't. No. Everybody says it's a fantastic airplane. But the, the problem is, and, and I think what they rightly pointed out is, you know, they had ramped up to that sort of staffing level because they had 1,800 deposits initially. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But now the price, the retail price is, Dave is reporting, $389,000. 400000 bucks for a light sport aircraft. Ian, that is a little too steep for many, many people. Yeah. Yep. And I think it went from sort of second, third airplane, fun territory to... Boy, you got to seriously want this thing to you know shell out that kind of money, and so they 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 aren't saying, but apparently a lot of these deposits are not being converted into uh, into sales, and some of that might be you know they've for years at Oshkosh they've taken this five thousand dollar deposit, you know, so it's like to get in that number that eighteen hundred number you just had to put down five thousand bucks, which for a lot of people is like yeah hey it's, it might be worth it you know we'll see what happens. It's like gambling on the stock market. A lot of people can afford a little bit of money to throw that way. You never know how it'll end up. Yeah, yeah. And if you do really well, you can sell your position for a profit maybe or whatever. Yeah, yeah. heck yeah. But I think what they're finding is the, those things just aren't coming through. And so they've had to like scale it way back. You know, they've got a couple of facilities now. And uh, just they their target had been... I think it was they were recently doing five airplanes a month, and even that they're gonna they said they're gonna come down from that a little bit. Well, so far they've they've built and delivered about 100 finished two seat A5s, and you know I just don't know that that kind of quantity is going to justify the workforce and the demand in the aviation marketplace. Yeah, it definitely seems like it. So we'll have to see. I mean, I, 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 you know, we say this every time with them. It's like we wish them the best, and, and hopefully, controlling costs like this is going to keep them, keep them going, uh, and keep them solvent. Because by all accounts, it is a fantastic airplane, and you know, we want to see those out there. Absolutely, it's a great design, and a lot of people are on board with it, and it probably will introduce a lot more young people to aviation. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Hey, something that turns people off of aviation. <laughs> Mandatory ICAO flight plans, um, something we have to talk about because it's really important. 
the flight plan form is changing. You may have heard about this because it's been in process for, well, I'll tell you how long it's been in process. When I was in government affairs in 2007, they were already talking about changing from the domestic flight plan to a mandatory ICAO flight plan. And it seems like it's finally going to happen. So starting in August, you're going to have to use an ICAO flight plan. August 27th, the day after my birthday. So Ian, 12 years, this has been in development for 12 years. Are you serious? Probably. It was probably predated me. I'm sure it did actually. So <laughs> yeah, more than that. People have been talking about it forever. That's amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, you and I were chatting about this a little bit beforehand. And I just did a couple of flights recently. And just for grins, I wanted to go ahead and enter it in the ICAO flight plan format. And it was not that difficult. Let's just get this right out, right off the bat. This is not a real difficult change for a lot of folks, but things are in different places on the flight plan form. The one thing that I noticed right off the bat, I mean, we can go through a lot of the details, but uh, it definitely is going to spur owners or renters to find out what kind of ADSB or transponder equipment that that aircraft has on board, because that is definitely something that has to be filled out in the IKO flight plan. Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad that you didn't find it too difficult because I was just so frustrated by the darn thing. And I did it through, I will say a tip for folks is if you use ForeFlight or Garmin, they have, and I think for a long time, had this this option, the ICAO flight plan option. And they will sort of, you know, they've put in the the controls that only let you pick certain things that make sense. And so it's it really is a good way to do it through one of the apps. So, yeah, you mentioned ADSB, you know, instead of saying, oh, we've got a, you know, mode C transponder. Now there's like, whatever, you know, 10 different options for surveillance equipment or whatever the number is. Well, you got to know your, your transponder. You got to know your ADSB. You got to know whether it's 1090 or 978 uh, megahertz. You also have to know the hex code. The hex code is the key. And uh, in our case, I looked it up at FAA.gov. I put in the end number of the aircraft I was going to fly. And lo and behold, poof, there it was. It told me what the code was for that particular ADSB box. Yeah, that's a that's a good tip. The other thing that you really have to be able to drill down on is your nav equipment. So it used to be, you know, whatever, slant golf because oh we had GPS or slant uniform because we just had VOR or DME. Now there are these really detailed sort of minute options for different types of RNAV, approach certified, non-approach certified. So you really got to know in advance what your airplane has and what the code is. That's correct. You need to know what equipment you have on board. And, and so in my case, I had a pretty nice airplane, a Cessna 182, and it had a, a standard VHF radio, VOR, and ILS. It also had RNAV. It had an IFR-approved GPS. So you do have to know the options. So I guess in a way, it's a little daunting, but in another way, it does let you know more about your aircraft and you do get more familiar with the equipment that is on board. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And so I would say for owners, you know, this is going to be a pain. You got to do it once in your app, you know, and maybe have a cheat sheet for when you want to call a flight service and they'll help walk you through it. For renters, though, it's like, man, I would push your flight school or whatever rental outfit you're using to have, let's say, like a chart with all the aircraft they offer and what the IKO codes are. Because otherwise, it's like every time you go and rent an airplane and it's a different airplane, you're going to have to figure this out. And it just takes it just takes time. Yeah, I think maybe a flip card or something like that that would be um, available to the pilot or, you know, at the flight school, if you can just have those options printed out and ready to go, it would make things a lot easier. Now, I do have to ask a, a, a personal question of you, Ian, with the IKO flight plans. So how many dinghies do you have on board? Yeah. 
<laughs> usually none. <laughs> usually none. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dinghies. Uh, and, and what color are they, right? Yeah. That is a question that they ask. How many life jackets now? They, one thing I do think is important, uh, and all seriousness aside, uh, emergency radio. Do you have an emergency radio board? I do carry one with me. A portable radio. I did check that box, and I put a VHF radio. So again, uh, for people who are going to use it the first time, drill all the way down through it. And I use the AOPA flight planner, the pre-flight planner, as we like to call it. And it is not too hard to kind of go through that and go block by block and enter the stuff. Most of it is the same as the FAA. It just adds a little bit more detail. Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, the AOPA flight planner, which you get as a member, so use that. You know, I mentioned like Garmin and Forflight, and I'm sure many of the other app makers, they've got it and we will sort of walk you through it. Otherwise, I would say, you know, call Lighthouse, call Flight Service because um, they've been trained in it. You can, you know, just throw up your hands and say, hey, look, this is the first time I've done this. Help me out, you know, and they'll walk you through it, I'm sure, very happily. They also have some online resources. So as long as you spend some time and do a little bit of homework, it shouldn't be too bad. Sounds good. Uh, we're, we all got to do it, Ian, so you might as well get on board. Take your medicine. That's right. All right, David, so you caught up with Sarah. Really excited to, to hear your chat and hear what you guys talked about. She's got a really interesting background and really a, a bright future and just a really interesting perspective, I think, based on where she, kind of she comes from. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Sarah Rovner. You are an airline pilot, a ferry pilot, and a scholarship donor. How's it going today? Doing pretty good. How have you been? We're good. We're good, Sarah. Look, I, I came into uh, knowing a little bit about your ferry pilot experience by looking at your website. Let's give that to the folks real quick, and then let's explain a little bit about what you do. But go ahead and give us your website for Full Throttle website for Full Throttle is fullthrottleaviationllc.com. Up there you'll find a lot of information on the scholarship as well as a little bit of information on our internship program. So despite just doing mostly ferry flights around the world, we also believe in giving back to the community. And so every year we've announced, since we've been in operation, we've been announcing scholarships. And this year we're going to be donating two tailwheel endorsements to people who have at least a private pilot or better who are interested in expanding their skill set and getting into conventional gear flying, which is something that we're very passionate about. So on the website, you'll be able to find the application form as well as information and essay and resume requirements for the scholarship. Awesome. And it's uh, fullthrottleaviationllc.com. And for folks who haven't met Sarah in person, which I haven't met you in person either, but I, f I feel like I know you a little bit more, you're offering a pair of approximately $1,600 in value scholarships for folks to get their tailwheel endorsement through the Delaware Valley Tail Draggers, and that's up in the Philadelphia area. That's correct. So the uh, course is all-inclusive. It's meant to be a, an intense two- to three-day tailwheel course. And if you look on the website, the Delaware Valley Tail Draggers website, it includes the course outline as well as the syllabus. So you can get a good understanding of exactly what you're going to be doing. So spend a weekend up in Philadelphia, earn your tailwheel endorsement, and go home as a better pilot. I love it. And deadline for folks is August the 15th. So get on that uh, online application to get things going. Look, I wanted to tell you, Sarah, I recently got my tailwheel endorsement myself, and it indeed made me a much better tricycle gear pilot. And w why do you think that is? Well, I think that 
a lot of people say, oh, you know, you get on the forums and they say if it has a little wheel up front, then it's not a real airplane. I'm completely disagreeing with that statement. But learning how to fly a tail dragger gives you an extra bag of tools in your, you know, an extra set of tools in your tool bag in case you need to use it in any type of situation. So being a tailwheel pilot kind of teaches you to reduce the amount of over-controlling that you're doing. It allows you to feel the airplane more. Somebody pointed out to me the other day that, you know, these vintage aircraft, you know, anything pretty much before 1950 or really 1955, doesn't even have a stall warning horn. And so you actually learn how to feel the airplane and understand the characteristics of it, in addition to learning how to be more precise when it comes down to your control inputs, especially on takeoff and landings. As people know, tailwheel airplanes are more likely to go the other way around on themselves on landing. And that's kind of why the endorsement was put in place. And so learning how to fly a tailwheel airplane is going to allow you to become more in tune with the airplane, be more in tune with your control inputs, and overall allow you to expand the ability of airplanes you can fly to so many amazing vintage tailwheel airplanes out there. That's a really good point that you bring up. And I'm going to let our podcast listeners know, and again, it's Sarah via Skype. We're glad to have you. I'm going to let our podcast listeners know you're, you really are an airline pilot. You've got an ATP certificate, and you've got type ratings in a Boeing 767, 757, 737, and the CL65. Now, I looked that up. That's like a Canada Air CRJ200 type jet, correct? That's correct. And so you, you've got a wealth of experience in the, in the big iron and also wealth of experience in general aviation airplanes, and you have ferried more than 100 general aviation aircraft through 15 countries. You've got to tell me more about this. So I started out trying to get as much flying time as I possibly could. Unlike a lot of people who've taken my career path, I never went into aviation with the intent to become a professional pilot. And so my weekends were spent at the local airport trying to network with people and fly as many different types of airplanes as I could. I tried doing aerobatics. I'm not the best at aerobatics, but I do enjoy it. You know, I've tried doing, getting into warbirds. And within aviation, there's so many different things you can do. And I kind of found that my niche was flying old tailwheel airplanes. Ended up buying a Super Cub and flying that for quite some time now. And every time I got a chance to fly in something new, I did it. And then transitioning into the ferry world, a lot of these airplanes that I've flown, there was no opportunity to get a formal checkout, usually because there were one-seat airplanes, some of these agricultural airplanes. And so over time, I developed a feel for the airplanes, was able to transition to all these different types, and was able to successfully fly over 121 different types of airplanes. And the 15 different countries was mostly transiting and, and going to different countries as a ferry pilot to deliver planes that were purchased by the owners. I want you to think about a more memorable ferry flight in a minute and tell us about that. But before we get into that, I just want you to start thinking about that. So tell me a little bit about how does one learn to fly a different type of aircraft if it only has one seat and you've never been in it before? Like, I mean, an air tractor, that's an ag airplane. Is that a one-seater or is that, that – it's not a two-seat airplane, is it? No, it's it's not. And – it, I, I always tell people that my first time in a turboprop was actually solo, which is true. At the time, I had, I think, over 1,500 hours of turbine time total. I had quite a bit of experience in tailwheel, quite a bit of experience on smaller ag planes. But in the end, on a lot of these airplanes, only have one seat. And some people do have a two-seat version. It's really, really hard to find. And I don't think that for the older or the smaller air tractors, you can even find a two-seat version. But getting in it the first time, you're having to kind of feel the airplane, understand the airplane, talk to people who've flown it before. 
But a lot of times it's just taking incremental steps up from the baseline. So I started my career flying old ag planes when I was towing gliders. And I started out in a, a small Pawnee, which was significantly less complicated and less challenging than an air tractor. Then I moved into an ag wagon and then into an ag truck and then into radial air tractors and then into turbine air tractors. So, and then once I had flown the air tractor, then you just start stepping up slowly into the bigger airplanes all the way up to the Thrush 550 air tractor 502s. So it's a lot of times it's just having to start out on a smaller airplane that's similar and then transitioning into the larger airplanes. Gotcha. And among the other smaller airplanes you've flown, one that's near and dear to my heart, as our Hangar Talk podcast listeners know, is the Air Coupe. <laughs> so I saw that on your resume here. And uh, I know you've flown Legend uh, Cubs. You've flown several different types of Piper Cubs, a Piper PA-28 line, uh, and on and on. I see a Stenson in here, a couple of Sia Marchettis. Tell me about the Sia Marchetti. Was it a uh, SF-260? Yeah, so the Sia Marchetti, I was actually supposed to fly one for a customer, but insurance wanted me to get a checkout in the airplane prior to doing that. And so I actually have a friend of mine who lives out in the Phoenix area who owns one, and he offered to take me up flying in it. And so I got to go out to Phoenix and get a bunch of experience taken off and landing in a bunch of the airports in that area. The airplane, it does have some very different handling characteristics, but in terms of complexity and you know level of challenge to land it, I really didn't find it to be extremely challenging, not compared to, let's say, a <laughs> Air Tractor 502, which was significantly more challenging. So getting some experience in that airplane was definitely helpful prior to going solo in it. All right. That's a, that's a pretty cool story. I see on here you've got a couple of Moonies. You've got a, a whole bunch of Pipers and Cherokees and things like that. Now, you've had a couple of minutes to think about it. What is, uh, give me like one harrowing story of a, of a ferry type, uh, ferry operation, a ferry mission. Yeah, I, I mean, while doing ferry flying, I always tell people that it's only slightly more safe than crop dusting. Ferry flying can be really challenging. You're getting into airplanes that you're not quite sure of the maintenance history. You're not quite sure how they've been maintained. And I've uh, unfortunately experienced four engine failures while ferrying airplanes. And two of those resulted in forced landings, but I was able to make it to an airport. So um, that's definitely something that a ferry pilot's going to run into. If you haven't had to declare an emergency as a ferry pilot, then chances are you haven't been ferrying long enough. So that's definitely a, a risk that's involved in it, and obviously you do your best to try to inspect the airplane and make sure all the service bulletins and ADs have been complied with. But in the end, you're getting into an airplane that might have been sitting for a long time. Ferrying across the ocean. I remember my first time in a single-engine airplane growing across the ocean. It is a feeling unlike anybody could imagine. And to say that I was not afraid would have been incorrect. Uh, you know, people ask me, oh, how can you possibly do this? I was like, well, trust me, the fear is there. And to put all of this trust in your ability to plan the flight correctly, your ability to calculate the performance, you're putting your trust in the weather, you're putting your trust in the mechanical status of the airplane. And, you know, I've done everything from brand new airplanes from the factory to older used airplanes. I took an old F-33 Bonanza across. I've taken a new Cirrus. I've taken a new Cessna across. But I remember my first time in a single-engine airplane going across, and it was probably the most nerve-wracking thing you could possibly imagine. I had calculated everything. It was not my first time crossing. Um, I had done it before in a King Air. I was along with the owner. And, I mean, it, it took every little bit of gumption 
that somebody could possibly have to actually launch because there's been plenty of airplanes abandoned and it was the most exhilarating feeling seeing landfall for the first time and and sitting there with your charts and checking your performance against the actual weather i mean it, i always tell people that it's a big mental challenge because the airplane flies the same it doesn't know it's over water but it's the mental challenge right yeah right it's just you it's the pilot the pilot has to get, to get the gumption like you said to get up to that and then normally folks from um, from the states aren't you normally crossing from like the us up into canada and then jumping over to greenland iceland and then europe that kind of route i guess they call it the, the northern arc or, or the spruce routes. It, it depends on the weather. I mean, what weather is the controlling and how much performance you have. I was surprised to learn that a, a brand new T206 from the factory only has 703 nautical miles of range. And unfortunately, that really doesn't give you enough to have a, an alternate. So you end up having to fly much further north to shorten the legs so that you can have a legal alternate for fuel. And then if you're doing that, now you're um, even more heavily dependent on weather or, uh, you know, instrument conditions and being able to tackle those instrument conditions. And I know there's a couple of airports that are only basically one way in and one way out. So that's got to add a little bit of stress factor to that ferry flying. Yeah, the weather's usually better further north than it is south. It seems that the weather around the Hudson Bay is pretty bad. And then, of course, the southern and the east sides of Greenland can also be kind of bad. But it mostly has to do with the currents and the bodies of water. Because as, as many people know, you know, why does Buffalo get so much snow? It's, you know, lake effect. And so the um, Hudson Bay acts as an ocean. And then, of course, the warm currents that you have going on the east side of Greenland also create havoc for the weather. Gotcha. Well, now that we've heard so many scary things about being a ferry pilot, now what are some of the good things about being a ferry pilot? And why would anyone want to do something like that? I would say that I have seen things from low level that most people could only imagine from pictures that most people won't see in their entire lifetime. I've flown along the fjords of Greenland. I mean, it's just absolutely, you get a clear day on the east coast of Greenland with the icebergs that are floating in the bay. As you're coming around the fjords, it's just the most exhilarating, most gorgeous thing you've ever seen. I've flown around the mountains in Alaska. I've flown, you know, around the beaches and the, you know, around Central America. So getting to explore a lot of the country and a lot of the world from an extremely unique perspective is something that I wouldn't trade for anything. Absolutely. That sounds great. Well, look, let's talk a little bit about career choices because you do have a wealth of aviation experience. Now, you did not start out in aviation. You started out, I think, in the software world. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to jump ship and really start looking at aviation and sort of, you know, coach other people along who might have similar thoughts because it's a great time to be an aviator right now. So my path was a little bit different than most people who get into aviation. I went into the military IT work, started working as a network engineer, worked my way up into the oil and gas industry. And I had always driven past this airport growing up called West Houston Airport. And aviation was always something that interested me. In fact, I had told my aunt when I was eight years old that I wanted to be an airline pilot. Kind of fell on the back burner, but when I finally had a good job that paid pretty decent, I was able to start taking flying lessons. So I started flying as a hobby and fell in love with it. On my first takeoff, I knew it was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so being a career pilot was something that I always had in the back of my mind, but I really didn't know if it was possible. I didn't know if it was a, a viable career path. I really didn't understand the pay or the schedule. And my entire life up to that point had been really working banker's hours, working a nine-to-five job. And so I had gone to Women in Aviation Conference and talked to a few of the airline recruiters, and I started really thinking about it. Well, unfortunately, in the end of 2014 and early 2015, the oil industry took a turn for the worse. 
the company that I was working at started laying off employees. We were having layoffs every Friday. And the, I read the writing on the walls and I said, you know what? I always wanted to be an airline pilot. So I took the jump and I applied to SkyWest Airlines. A few months later, I was in training. I had built all of my time prior to even go to the airlines from flying as a hobby as well as ferry flying. And then I already had the time, so I went over to the airlines and I fell in love with it. And it's something that I realized I wanted to do forever, worked my way up through the company and then eventually got into the seat of a major airline. So for anybody out there looking for the career path, my career path from career change to major airlines took approximately four years. And that's of professional flying. If you count the time prior to that, it's probably been about eight years. And, you know, at first it was a huge pay cut going from a, a really nice network engineering job to going to a regional airline. And when I first started at the regionals, it was before they offered bonuses and all this money. So it was a pretty big career change. And I had to save up money because I couldn't afford to maintain my lifestyle with a huge pay cut like that. I think it was about a hundred thousand dollar pay cut when I left. Ah, serious. And <laughs> it was, you know, I was wanted to follow my dream. And of course the earnings potential starts to get back to where you are, if not exceed that once you put in your time at a at a larger airline. And there's a lot of different options for people out there looking to change. But when I the biggest thing that made me realize that I made the right choice was that when I told my boss at my network engineering job that I was leaving to go be a pilot, I had people coming out of the woodwork. They were coming from different departments, people from other you know, floors in the office building, and they were all coming up to me and says, man, I wish I would have done what you did. I wish I would have taken that job in Chicago. I wish I would have done this with my career. And that was the most important thing to me is that if aviation is something that you're passionate about, you should make the jump. I mean, you can find a way to make the numbers work. I did. I had to make a lot of sacrifices, but I found a way to make the numbers work. But you should, because in the end, all we are is the sum of our experiences. And if aviation is something you're passionate about, and you've always wanted to explore that avenue to be a professional pilot, there couldn't be a better possible time to do it. And so if you're out there thinking about it, it's definitely a viable career path and one that I can say personally that I don't regret taking. Absolutely. And there are a lot of different options available to folks. In fact, over here at AOPA, we just recently announced some scholarships for teachers and for high school students. And we also have scholarships available for folks who already have a, their private license and are looking to do a little bit more advanced flying, that kind of thing. So it's not out of the question to go ahead and do a midlife career change and jump into aviation. Because Boeing says that, I mean, we're looking at the next 20 years of fantastic growth in the aviation and aerospace industry as people travel more and become more mobile and as the Asian market opens up. And so we'll see more people traveling. We'll see more airlines. We'll see some of the future in the uh, looking to take off, like electrical vertical takeoff and landing devices, which might or might not have a pilot in the aircraft. There might be a pilot on the ground. That might be another route for folks to take, people who are really into software and computing, so, uh, and drone flying as well. So there are a lot of aviation opportunities out there, including ferry flying and flying for the airlines. And you did mention one thing that is a more recent development is that the regional airlines have started to offer sort of like athletes get these bonuses for signing on. They've started to offer signing bonuses and healthcare, uh, increased healthcare benefits and really a lot of extra incentives to keep people involved and to keep people in the system as they travel through that airline, you know, jumping from the regionals to the majors. 
Yes, and, and there's so many different programs out there. They now have cadet programs. The majority of the regionals do. There's been a lot of quality of life improvements that have, you know, helped people. There's tons of bonuses. The pay is much higher. Obviously, they're trying to attract people, and it's extremely competitive. It's completely a buyer's market. So it used to be you had to sit there and instruct for five years and get a bunch of multi-time before they would even hire you. But now it's really the market's open to people looking to get into aviation. So there's a lot of opportunities, even for low-time pilots. And even if you don't want to do airlines, I mean, there's cargo you can do. You can do charter operations. You can do private jets. You can do, you know, firefighting operations. And they pay it amazing, too. It's like $500 an hour to do a single-engine air tanker flying. You know, there's so many opportunities and so many different parts of aviation out there that you shouldn't just – channel yourself into one avenue. Airlines aren't for everybody. Just like crop dusting is not for everybody, but there's so much opportunity out there right now because of the shortage that people looking to get into aviation have a plethora of different career paths to choose from. That makes sense, Sarah. That makes sense. I'm going to ask you one other thing that you uh, touched on before we start to wrap things up. Now, you touched on women in aviation, and you found that that to be a very welcoming organization. Now, I do need to ask you, you are a female in aviation, which has traditionally been a male-dominated field. Has that presented any challenges to you, and if so, how have you overcome them? I don't know if I'd be the right person to ask that question to because it's all a matter of comparison. And throughout my entire life, I have pretty much only worked in male-dominated career fields, so being in the military I think I was the only female in the IT department in oil and gas. And so I've always worked in traditional male-dominated career fields. And the thing about the airlines is that for the most part, it's not really merit-based. It's by seniority. And that right now, the way things are going, if you're a hard worker and you're willing to put in the effort and the time, then I don't think that being of a specific gender is really going to hold you back. I mean, right now, everybody's desperate for pilots and I think that the way things have shifted, it's become a very viable career path for people to have a family and pretty much do what they want to do. So I personally haven't had any significant issues, but I'm kind of the person who looks past a lot of the weird comments that people make and tries not to make a big deal out of it. Gotcha. So you, were, I would say that you were fortunate that you did not have to deal with some of this, and a lot of people have. But nonetheless, the business climate is changing around the world right now, and there are more opportunities for, for young people. There are more opportunities for women, especially in some of the STEM courses, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, as you have indicated, you know, even from your prior career as a systems engineer. So that, that maybe that, you know, learning a little bit more about math and systems and things like that gave you a little bit of a jump to kind of figure out some of the you know, a little bit of the aviation systems. I don't know. I'm just trying to make a leap here. Maybe I'm in the wrong direction. No, I mean, it's, it's been a good path. And, you know, there's a lot of women who are getting more involved in STEM. It used to be that the airlines were a traditionally male career path because it required so much time away from home and people don't think that they can start a family. And that's just not the case. You know, by the time you get some seniority at an airline, you can pick your days off. I, I know somebody who flies a 777 and you know, he's, he only works one week a month and he's home the rest of the month and he, and he spends most of his time on a sailboat down in the Caribbean. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities for people, especially women, who want to have a family and have, be able to raise children and also have a career. And that's kind of been changing a lot, too. And I think part of it is just the shortage and a lot of the quality of life improvements, as well as airlines and other organizations trying to welcome diversity 
more than they ever have in the past. That makes sense, Sarah. That makes sense. So we're going to wrap it up pretty quick here. I know you've got some things to do today. I don't want to keep you too long via Skype uh, for the Hangar Top Podcast, but you've been an excellent guest so far. Is there anything I haven't asked you about, Sarah, that you want to let our folks know about, maybe how to get involved in aviation, or do you want to encourage them to check out fullthrottleaviationllc.com or Delaware Tail Draggers? Just let folks know. I, When I first started in aviation, I was trying to figure out how to pay for it. I was trying to figure out any possible way to get my ratings and everything like that. Fortunately, I did have the GI Bill, but I remember applying to scholarships and just never hearing back. And I've heard that from so many people who are frustrated in their journey for financial reasons. And the biggest advice I can tell them is that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and you've got to be persistent, and you can't give up. Because there are times, even as a professional pilot, I mean, I know people – you know, who are training on the the largest airplanes that fly these days. And they've run into struggles too. So if you're out there wondering how on earth you're going to pay for flight training, don't give up. I mean, I applied for scholarships over the course of four or five years. And I think that without exaggerating, I've applied and written essays for over 50 different scholarships. And out of those 50, on year five, I finally received one through the Society of Women Airline Pilots for a 737 type rating. So if you're thinking that, man, there's no possible way I can possibly get a scholarship, my best advice is try anyway. Don't give up. Put 100% of your effort into it. And even if 99 people tell you no, one of them's going to say yes. Sarah, that's awesome advice. It's very good. I love your encouragement. So basically, perseverance, don't miss your shots, and don't give up. Just recap in the last couple of minutes. That's correct. I'm going to let folks know real quick how to, they can get in touch with you. Uh, you've got a couple of, uh, of sites that you have going here. The primary site for your ferry pilot business is fullthrottleaviationllc.com. And we can learn a little bit more about you, about some of the more than 120 different aircraft you've flown, and a little bit about how folks in the industry think of you. You've got very high, high marks from a lot of folks that you've helped out. And also, I'm going to drop the name of DelawareValleyTailDraggers.com again. So folks know that that's where they'll be getting their tailwheel endorsement uh, scholarship. That will be the, the instruction arm for the uh, scholarship that you're offering. Again, two $1,600 each scholarships, and the deadline is August the 15th for those two. That's correct. Sarah, we appreciate you being on Hangar Talk. I hope that our paths cross in person one day soon. Sounds like a plan. Thank you for having me, and good luck to everybody out there who is looking to further their aviation career and skill sets. Sounds good. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right, so David, that, that was a great chat. You know, I just saw on Facebook that she said that she turned 30 flying over the Atlantic. So that's that's a cool milestone. That's amazing. And she's already flown over 120 different types of general aviation aircraft in 15 countries. 
And she offers uh, scholarships for, for aspiring tail dragger students as you know, myself. And I just think that's a great role model to have in a young person. And it shows you that ferry pilot, you know, being a ferry pilot, which is something that she really has a passion for, is a real interesting way of life. And that's one other thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Something maybe folks just sort of overlook. But, yeah, great point. And, uh, yeah, like I said, in really interesting conversation and love that she's out there sort of, you know, holding the torch for a new generation, hopefully. So I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes. We're at the Sporties Takeoff app. We're also on Spotify. You can reach us through the AOPA hangar if you get a chance. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you again. Thanks. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.